Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. My guest today is Dr. Mark Kuzinis, Senior Science Communication Advisor to an FDA Director. Mark will tell us how he sets a standard against which no one can compete. Mark is dear to my heart. You will learn why soon. In 2002, my client employer, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, founded by Danny Thomas, presented me with a daunting search, Director of Scientific Communications, a new position which would report to the head of St. Jude. I worked with the search committee of scientists to create a blueprint of the right fit candidate. On one hand, I was delighted that they knew exactly what they wanted, but on the other hand, I was concerned whether I could find the person who would match the specs of the blueprint. I knew that I had to find not just the right fit, but the flawless fit. Here's the blueprint of the Director of Scientific Communications. PhD scientist, the PhD was mandatory. I couldn't get them to budge on this point. Expert in translating the scientific nuggets into messages that the public could understand. Outstanding interpersonal skills. Experience working at a first-rate scientific institution as well as high-level public relations experience. It was clear that I was searching for a scientist who walked on water. I found him, Dr. Mark Kuzinitz. Mark, take us back to 2002 and tell us how you felt when I called you to tell you about the search. Hi, Arlene. Uh, thanks for the kind words. Uh, back in 2002, I was working in Washington, D.C., and looking to uh, move on and up. And when you originally called uh, and started talking to me about a job in Memphis, Tennessee, I, I, I have to say I was a little um, pushed back. I had no uh, thoughts in my mind about moving to Memphis. And then you started talking to me about the job. And you talked to me as if to say, it doesn't matter what you think or you're surprised or anything, Mark. Here is a great job that you're perfect for. And it was your approach that kept my attention. And when I initially heard the job description, 
I started feeling more comfortable with the job because it seemed to be summarizing my resume and my life experience. So that eased me, and I was a lot more uh, willing to uh, talk with you at length and actually consider moving from Washington, D.C. area to Memphis. And I felt that uh, if I decided that I wanted to pursue it, that it wouldn't be a lost cause because I seemed to fit right in with that job. So that was my impression. Mark, take us back a little bit. I wanted to get your sense as to why you were ready to leave a PR firm. I know that you're a scientist, and you went back and forth between high-level institutions where you actually could use your scientific expertise on a daily basis, and then you went into a PR environment. Can you tell us a bit about that before we proceed to talk about how you match the blueprint? Because I think that's an important component about your making a decision to work with me so that I would present you as the right fit candidate. Well, I had worked, um, as you know, at some academic institutions, one of them extremely high-powered and demanding, and I had to use science every day, write about it, talk with scientists and doctors and so forth. And when I worked at public relations firms, the skills were, were a bit different. I did, not have to, I did have to know how to write science and understand it, but a public relations firm obviously is a universe away from an academic medical institution, so you have different, um, different skill sets you have to develop or already have. So that experience with public relations firms uh, did add to my resume, but I was getting itchy to, to, I guess, spread my wings, get back into an academic setting, because the public relations firm, you, it kind of runs hot and cold what you do and how exciting it is and what they need you for and how often they need you and so forth. And at an academic institution, things are always running. 24 hours a day, it seems, it's always running. And I wanted to move on up and have more um, more influence on what was happening in the in the communications field, and that's why I thought I would fit at St. Jude, and I thought I could really spread my wings there. Because basically, we have two blueprints. We have your blueprint of what the right fit should be, and then we had my client employer's blueprint of exactly what they were looking for. I mean, let's face it, the employer considers what they want as primary. And as a search consultant and career coach, I had to think about both perspectives to be sure that the blueprint matched the blueprint of St. Jude matched your blueprint. So maybe you can give us some idea a little more about your blueprint and then let's talk about St. Jude's and see how it all meshes together. Well, my my background uh, was 
getting a Ph.D. in science, working in a lab. I did not do postdoc work, but I did get a good grounding in science and laboratory, and I, and I got a good feel for academic research. And then I went into writing, and I started from the ground up, literally. I started working uh, at Scholastic Science World, writing for junior high school kids back in the 70s, I guess, and in order to write for that audience, you really have to know how to translate. That was very demanding. So that was a, a boot camp in translation uh, experience. And I was there for a few years, and then I moved on up uh, working for a medical journal, um, running a, a news feature section, and, and on and on and on. And then I got into uh, other forms of public relation, and I was at a couple of uh, academic institutions, including Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions, and I was at Hopkins for six and a half years doing a lot of um, high-end me uh, medical public relations, working with the networks, with CNN and uh, newspapers, uh, magazines, uh, here and abroad. And uh, they were pretty and, uh, local, regional, national, international, and a lot of them were very demanding, as you can imagine, and often pressed for time. So I had to learn to deal with the media uh, firmly but kindly and nicely and, and be very helpful and not get um, shook up, but just get the job done. And I made friends and, and, and moved along with that. And after that, uh, I was with a um, pharmaceutical company, learned a bit about the pharmaceutical business, and after that, public relations firms, a couple of them, moving on to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which was another very high-powered um, organization with an incredible faculty and uh, very demanding faculty. And I honed myself further there. And along the way, I did a lot of freelance writing, whether it was just writing uh, summaries, uh, abstracts of scientific uh, reports to writing uh, books for the layperson, a few freelance articles for new newspapers, things like that. Uh, it, was, it was a big gamish of things, and I took anything that came my way, I generally took, not only for the money, but for the experience. Say, hey, I've never done that. Well, now I've done it, and that goes on the resume. So you kept building and building and building. Okay. Well, let's step back a little bit. Um, before I placed you at St. Jude, let's step back to when I called, and you wanted to proceed um, to work with me for me to present you at St. Jude. And you mentioned that you decided that you would relocate so that even though you weren't crazy about Memphis, Tennessee, you would move. So mm -hmm. that was the first thing that would be important in terms of um, your blueprint of the right fit. And right. then you also uh, decided what else, Mark? Is there anything? In other words, having... I remember the conversation vividly when we were discussing the different institutions you worked with that you had a sense of longing that you were searching for an ev another environment akin to Johns Hopkins. Am I correct? The academic, academic yeah. research. That's right. where I felt most comfortable. Right. Okay. So let's go further then. Because those were the two things I think that you were interested in. I know you were interested in making more money, but um, I think that the other two aspects 
were more important to you. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I, I I had to I had to be willing to relocate, and I really did want to move on from where I was. I really did, and that's a powerful impetus. The question was where to, and I didn't want to jump just anywhere because you can get into serious trouble that way uh, because you don't think hard enough on the choice. Right. Well, you don't want to have uh, a wrong fit situation right. and all of a sudden um, need to run out the door. And I think right. that you were very careful that you wanted to be sure that it was at exactly the right fit or uh, the flawless fit, as I call it. Okay, let's let's go back in terms of how you match the blueprint. You had a Ph.D. in what field, Mark? Biology. Okay. Um, give us some examples about how you're an expert in translating the scientific nuggets here so that the public can understand them. Could you give us, let's say, a, a small piece of research and how you would make it understandable to me and to our listeners? Well, it, it depends if it's uh, depending on whether it's basic research or um, or applied, you know, clinical. What I do is I talk. I first of all, if it's generally a published article that I'm writing about. I'm writing a press release on the new research, and the first thing I do is read it myself. And more than likely, there'll be certain things I'll have to look up, reference, because I can't be an expert in every single part of biology. And I make sure I understand the paper. And then what I, I work through my head uh, reading the introduction of this paper that gives the background. Like, what led up to this paper? And so then I understand, okay, there's a background to this. Why did they even bother doing this research? And then and the discussion tells you why it's important. And then I, I try to put that together in my head. Then I talk to the researcher and I generally tend to ask um, a number of questions, some of them that have overlapping answers that, you know, you could say, well, I kind of answered that question before, but I keep asking those questions, even overlapping questions, uh, to draw out more information and have the researcher explain in maybe a different way until I get a great quote, a great analogy, something like that. And then I worked on the press release, and uh, the, one of the hardest parts is the, uh, the lead, say. And once you get that and you've got the reader's attention, you can move on from there. But it also takes a lot of editing, a lot of work, and a lot of trying to see that work you're writing with a fresh eye, which is very difficult. Sometimes you just have to walk away from it and come back and say, what if I never heard of this kind of research before? You have to bring the person along step by step, and you have to throw in little nuggets, little, little, uh, I one, one teacher of mine in journalism said, little marshmallows you drop along the way. An interesting quote, a fascinating fact, something like that, to keep the reader's attention. And so it's, it's a matter of crafting, and that takes years of experience and years of yourself being edited by others who tell you where you went wrong and rewrite this. It doesn't make any sense. And so you have to be willing to be edited, to be uh, told you're wrong, and to redo things yourself and, and have others look at them. So it's, it's a lot of work. Okay. All right. 
Um, let's go further. We know that obviously you worked in very high-level scientific institutions, both academic and public relations. So according to all the specs, you were the flawless fit. All right. However, we had work to do, Mark. Yep. Um, we needed to work on your curriculum vitae, and we all know that the CV and the resume are, are written broadcasts which explain why we are the right fit. I wanted your CV to show that you matched the blueprint perfectly. Can you recall what I asked you to do? Yeah, you said forget about process and focus on achievements. What did you achieve? What did you do? Don't just say I worked in such and such a field, I have such and such experience. Say I did this, I did that project, I successfully did this, I wrote a brand new document, uh, groundbreaking document on this, so forth and so on. And so the person reading the resume can actually see in detail, some detail, uh, what I did um, that would match what they're looking for and not just a generality. A generality can mean almost anything. Well, we spent a lot of time reworking your CV. Um, how did you feel about that? Well, at the time, I thought, boy, this is a lot of work. You know, as she called me up, she said, boy, you're such a great fit for this. And I <laughs> thought I was on a sale. And then she said, but, Mark, we have to redo your resume, and you, we have to make it say what you did. And, on, and so I spent a lot of time on it, sent it to you, as I recall. Um, we got on the phone, and I had to redo some of it. And you were, you were very specific. And, and very insistent and wouldn't take anything but what was perfect. And so it was, there was a lot of work, but when I finished, I, I looked at it and said, this is, a, this is a nice bio in such a way, and it gave me confidence that I could walk, sit down in front of someone who had read that uh, resume and sit down with confidence and, and talk to that person and uh, not worry about, well, did they understand the resume? Do they really get what I did and what I'm about? There was no question because of the way that resume was written. Maybe so should, I could concentrate on presenting myself. Maybe we should tell our listeners about the interview process and why it was so important that your resume really show the fit? Because this was not a simple process where you met one person or two people. Um, maybe you could, could you share that with us, I think? That it was about a day and a half process, and I, I, and I was escorted from person to person to person to person to person, and I finally got a lunch break, and at the lunch break I was put in a room to eat my lunch, and somebody came to me and sat down to talk to me. So it was very intense. People wanted to know me, wanted to get to know me. I talked to administrators, to scientists, uh, to PR, a PR person. Um, I talked to uh, just everybody hitting me from all different sides of who I was, what I did. And everybody was very nice. It wasn't, it wasn't a third degree. They were pleased to see me. We had a great conversation 
but they asked questions. Even though they had that resume, a detailed resume, you know, we, we just chit-chatted about what I did and my background a little bit and what St. Jude was like and so forth. And, uh, and they wanted to get to, to know me as a person. And I feel that there was more of an effort to get to know me as a person than to dig at what I actually did because they had that in front of them. The resume was so detailed that we could go beyond that and get to what kind of person I am. And uh, I'm generally an easygoing guy. I work hard, but I'm easygoing and I'm pleasant and, and I get along with people. So if you have a good uh, resume and, and you interact with people well, you put them at ease and you have the answers to their questions and you're honest, uh, it, it seems to work out pretty well. Well, do you feel that because the resume showed the fit, that it really set the stage so they didn't have to keep probing to determine whether you are the fit? Exactly, exactly. That's why I, I said I went in there with confidence because Good. I knew when they saw that, that resume that those kind of details were settled. That was done. That was over. Now, who's Mark Kuznets? That's right. Because and Guy is he. Yeah. And, and I was so, and I usually do well at interviews, but I did, I think, especially well at this interview. These interviews, even though these interviews were, there was a lot more at stake at these in these interviews than almost any time before in my career, and yet I was really at ease. Um, not, I wasn't cocky at all, but I wasn't nervous and shaking. Oh my God, this is such a big job! I don't want to screw this up. I was confident. Well, and also, too, you were the first resume. person to take that job. It was a brand-new position, which exactly. made it more difficult for them to make a decision, and you were the one person that I sent to St. Jude, and you right. were the one right fit. Um, right. So, okay, let's go a bit further. Um, there's no question that in your field you set a standard against which no one can compete. I want our listeners to hear what your references said about you before I placed you at St. Jude. Here are some quotes from many pages of references. Mark was a person you'd like to be in the presence of. He had a chemistry that is hard to define. Because of his chemistry, he knows more about us than anyone else. We schmooze a hard worker, and not a clock watcher. He also has a high threshold under pressure. He has no outbursts under stress. A pleasure to work with. He had a certain spark that lit the place up. So committed that he continues to think about my needs and emails information to me even after he left the institution. A great guy and a joy to work with. If you asked him to do something, you did not have to worry about it. He is a can-do guy. Someone who asks the right questions, very loyal, composed, with a sense of humor, which makes him a natural leader among his peers, has the requisite skills and intelligence to comprehend complex scientific matters and translate that into materials that lay that the lay audience can not only understand, but also appreciate. 
knows how to distill information, can portray the scientist's messages in a way that makes people proud. His scientific judgment was superb. He had a very good understanding of the nuances of science and the nuts and bolts. He took the arcane and the highly complex and translated it. Most scientists write as scientists. He did not do this. He had the ability to translate very difficult scientific information into easily understandable language for the press. He writes very well. Here's my favorite quote about you. Exquisite, sensitive to press deadlines, exquisitely sensitive to press deadlines, could recognize hot buttons, knew how to juggle simultaneously while still observing priorities, had the nose for news, never eaten alive by the press, always knew where the landmines were. How do you set the standard, Mark? Well, it's an, the old-fashioned hard work, put other people first, always say, yeah, I'll do that when you're asked to do something. Get the experience, make yourself indispensable, read, educate yourself, uh, become part of the institution, uh, make yourself as indispensable as possible, and not worry about um, what somebody may be doing at an other institution. Am I doing what people in my position do at other institutions? It's what does my institution need? How can I best serve that? How can I move the institution forward and not get wrapped up in some kind of competition? If you worry about competition, instead of looking ahead, you're always looking behind. That doesn't help your your institution. Take us back to your childhood and how the seeds were planted. Well, my mother and father were were fairly strict but very loving, and they were very uh, insistent that we get good educations. My father went to college. My mother did not, but they were both very bright and very interested in learning. And when we went off to college, I was the middle of seven, and and, uh, as the middle child, I was somewhat uh, kind of had to fend for myself and sometimes as far as attention. I wasn't the oldest, and I wasn't the youngest, uh, and so I had to... uh, you know, make sure I could take care of myself. And I always was loved and supported by my parents. And that kind of support and that kind of insistence on education, uh, I think, just carried through in my life. And also they they taught me that you should be a good person, help other people, be a good citizen. And when you're, you, you take those uh, characteristics to a job as a good citizen helping other people, that helps your own career tremendously. I've, I've told my my sons who are, are coming of age now that when they work at an wherever they work, if they work hard and are very nice, it's it's like you're almost cheating because there are so many people who are not nice at work. They're not nice to deal with. They'll do the bare minimum, and if you get in there and just work hard and are nice and 
cooperate and say, sure, I'll do that, and don't lose your temper. You're like gold. People say, oh, thank goodness for that person. It's, it's, you just move far beyond people. I don't know why everybody isn't like that, but they're not, because it's self-destructive not to be, but that's the fact. So you keep that in mind, keep looking forward, keep working hard, and keep being loyal and supporting your institution. You worked at highly prestigious institutions, including the Johns Hopkins, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, Burson Marsteller, Ruder Finn. They set the standard. You set the standard. How did that work out? Well, you go in and you learn what their standard is, and often they tell you or it's written somewhere you know, they have very, every institution seems to have a, a chart of what we stand for and so forth. And, you know, sometimes that's just, you know, nice words and, and nothing else. Uh, but you learn by working with people. And one of the things um, I learned to do, I, I wanted to do, is, is work with people who are better, brighter than I was, more experienced. And they really tell you uh, what's expected and and by their own actions, they, they show you what's expected. And, and the way I look at it is if, if I'm a knife, I'm honing myself against a hard rock. And those people who are uh, brighter than I am, more experienced than I am, are the hard rock. I just hone against them. It, it doesn't, it, you can't grow if you're not honing yourself against people who are better than you. You know, just deciding you want to be a big fish in a, in a, in a small pond isn't going to uh, get you anywhere. Would you say that you keep raising the bar higher and higher and keep stretching yourself so that you keep improving so that you don't care about what other people do, Mark? Would you say that's a correct description of how you set the standard? I would say so. Every every, uh, job I've had, I've I've, I've moved on up the ladder in responsibility and so forth, and... and, um, if you don't keep setting the a bar higher, then what you're not doing is you're not using what you've learned and the experiences you've had uh, to create something new and better. You're just doing the same old thing over and over and over again, and you can always get away with that, and you can go from year to year. But if you don't grow and you always say, well, I don't know how to do that, you don't grow. When I was at Burson Marsteller, one of the jobs I was given was to go to a client, a government agency, a science agency, and do a five-minute video that was going to be presented at a uh, at the National Press Club. And I had never done anything like that. I had helped uh, TV news uh, crews with stories, setting it up and seeing how they did it, but actually going out producing it myself, doing the interviewing, and then going to a professional editor and sitting down for two days over going through hours and hours of, of film and doing an editing. Never done that. Uh, but so that was what they call a stretch <laughs> uh, project. And I did it, and it came out well. Um, you, you've, you've got to stretch. You do stretch projects. And if you don't do stretch projects, then you don't stretch. You just do the same old thing, and you never grow. Tell us about your acting role as Larry King. Oh, that was at St. Jude. St. Jude, as probably a lot of people know by now, the uh, 
the main fundraiser, the, the, the celebrity who's in charge of fundraising is Marlo Thomas, the daughter of the founder, Danny Thomas. And uh, she has a lot of uh, contacts in the media. And so every year, uh, St. Jude has a thanks and giving where they raise money. And it's between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And people see the videos on TV, the movies and, and photographs, newspapers and so forth. And she also arranges to get uh, families and patients and doctors and research on the Larry King Show and the Today Show. And in order to prepare some of the families for the and faculty for the Larry King Show, uh, which is what they call live to tape. They do it live. There's no editing, but then it's run as a tape. So you do it right the first time, no editing. Um, I was asked uh, by some of the PR department to go into the studio at St. Jude. They have their own studio and uh, play the role of Larry King. So I, I played the part. I had a suit and I had suspenders and a colorful tie and I sat in front of them, the children and, and parents and researchers and started asking questions and kind of looking down at my notes and whatever mannerisms there were that I could pull up of Larry King. And we did it. And it was videotaped so anybody could see it just to see how they did. And then we discussed it afterwards. So it was just a way of preparing them for being on the Larry King Show. Okay. Uh, would you say that that helped them to set the standards through going through this rehearsal? Oh, yes. Uh, when you saw them on the Larry King Show, uh, I don't know how good they would have been. They might have been very good without the uh, the rehearsal, but certainly I'm sure the rehearsal didn't hurt. And and nobody seemed particularly nervous. They seemed pretty mellow, and they, they did a good job on the Larry King Show. Tell us about Johns Hopkins. There was a, sh- a story that you told me prior to our show today that was kind of an interesting story. Well, that was the uh, the special story I had to put together in an emergency, I guess. Right. I was working with a uh, with a uh, a production company from Australia that did science new science stories, and it was an hour long program and it ran on cable worldwide, and the camera crew goes around the world six months of the year, taping stories. Then they go back to Australia and they do the editing, and then they run the the uh, stories. And uh, I had worked with them. They were going to come to Hopkins from, they were going to be in England doing a story, then fly uh, to Baltimore. And so they called me from England, wanted to make sure everything's all set, and I said, yeah, and I'll, I'll verify that. And I called the doctor to make sure everything was all set. And for some reason, uh, I guess he, he forgot or whatever it was. He said, no, I'm going to be out of town. And I thought to myself, geez, you know, this can't be. He he agreed. I'm sure he agreed. I, I wouldn't have pulled this out of my head. And so I went back. I called the people in, in England, and, and I told them what had happened. They were a little upset, obviously, because they hadn't made all the arrangements. I said, let me come up with another story. So I sat at my desk and, and pulled together a story. It was a, it was a, actually two different stories that were related in somehow in uh, brain imaging, and this was back in the 90s when brain imaging was really undergoing a renaissance with CAT scans and PET scans and putting together um, uh, thousands of slices of CAT and PET scan 
into a video because you had all the information and a computer could make it a video. So one doctor created a tour through his own brain, and another doctor and a psychiatrist was showing a uh, psychiatric patient uh, the section of her brain, her own brain on a screen, saying, this is why you're hearing voices. And so I managed to tie them both together, pitched it to the to the people who were still in England. They thought it was very good, and everybody agreed, the doctors, everything. So the crew came over, and when the uh, the crew was starting to film, the uh, producer, and she was also one of the stars of the announcers of the show, she wanted to have her own tour of her own brain done. So she underwent that process as well, and she later told me that it was probably one of her most favorite stories she did, and that was done uh, basically to save my butt. <laughs> so it was done in not in a not auspicious a way as it could have been, but instead of panicking, I sat down and I said, well, we can solve this. There are plenty of stories at Hopkins, and you work, work through it, and you get it done. You had shared with me how other people responded to how you took charge of this. Tell us what they said. Well, the, uh, the people at the, uh, at the TV crew um, were very grateful that I had done it, and and one of the one of the, the producer actually said, you know, Mark, each story by itself wouldn't have been a story enough, but combining them really did it. And I thought to myself, well, that's why I combined them. <laughs> so I didn't say anything. I said, yeah, yeah. And uh, so they were they were they they were impressed. Yeah, that that uh, I combined two stories that wouldn't have been able to stand on their own. Uh, but when you put them together, they, they reinforce each other. What about your colleagues when you shared how you um, put all this together kind of like magic in the last minute? What do your colleagues say? I remember you told me they had a different response. Can you share that? Oh, there was another story I did. Um, it was about something negative that happened at Hopkins. And... and uh, you know, every once in a while something goes wrong at an at a academic medical institution and you don't like to talk about it. Well, uh, this was one of those things, and I, I don't have to go into details, but it, it happens on occasion. And um, what I wanted to do, since it was in the newspapers uh, and the TV um, stations, the four TV stations each wanted to come in and talk about it, I did not want to... Stonewall, because that can blow up in your face. What I wanted to do, and the, the term I used was Lance the Boil. You just, you want to talk about it? Come on in. Here, here somebody can tell you about it, give you some details. This is what happened. This is how we fixed it. Things are going swimmingly. And I was very downbeat, brought the camera crew in, explained to them, yeah, this happened, and so we're solving it this way, on and on. And it was, and the psychology I used was, if I'm being so downbeat about it and saying, yeah, come on in, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk to an expert, what's going on, that diffuses it. If I'm getting all upset and saying, oh, no, 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 we can't talk about it or something like that, you know, it builds up the story, builds up the drama. I just de-dramatized it. Yeah, problem, we solved it. Here's how we're solving it. And it ran for one night, and it was gone. It disappeared. And... That summer, once again, Johns Hopkins was rated number one hospital in U.S. News and World Reports hospitals. 
Do you think if you had Boil and move on. Diffused, yeah, if you had not diffused it, do you think that that negative story could have actually shut them down from the number one place? Well, uh, I don't... I don't know if I'd go that far, but let's put it this way: it would not have. It would have. It would have fed the story. It would have fed the story if I said, if we try to stonewall, then it feeds the story because then there's a feeding frenzy. The the uh, the the it goes on the air anyway, and Johns Hopkins refused to talk to us and da da da. And so they still want to get the information, so they're still going to pester us. They'll pester somebody. They'll call somebody else in the hospital, and then the story will keep on going. So what I did is, what I said, I lanced the boil. I took all the drama out of it. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, okay, let's go a bit further uh, to our final question, which is um, creating a healthy economy is dependent on high standards. What do you suggest if it was your responsibility to advise President Barack Obama. Well, my bias, as you can probably tell, is research, and I make no apologies for that. And what I would do to advise him, and it's something he apparently already is aware of and he's already been doing anyway, but I would advise him to invest in the raw materials of uh, economic growth. What some, among the raw materials is basic research science and scientific infrastructure to create the new knowledge that is going to make new products, new treatments, new technologies uh, to do things faster, cheaper, simpler, better, and to keep the United States at the forefront of, of research and technology. That's, um, that's, you use the raw material, and that helps build up the economy. And he's already going that way. He's going to be giving an enormous amount of money to uh, extra money to NIH and National Science Foundation, from what I've read. So he's he's right on top of it, and he understands uh, the importance of science and the growth of science. Well, Mark, it's just been a pleasure having you today, and I really I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, the whole country needs help in learning how to set standards against which no one can compete. And I think that your story will help them understand what you achieved by putting that as your beacon to lead you throughout your life. Yes. I look forward to having another stimulating conversation with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Please join me again next Wednesday, January 28th, for Winning in Politics with Lulu Flores, the president of the National Women's Political Caucus. Lulu will share the, her impressions of the inauguration and more. Be sure to join us at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I look forward to hearing from you. Please email me at drbarrow, B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com 
or call me directly, 310-441-5305. Watch my Blog Talk Radio blog for a special announcement soon. Until next time, remember this trigger tip. It's all up to you to set a standard against which no one can compete. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, and Career Coach One.